Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning to you. Excellent. It is a great privilege again to, to open God's word with God's people, to hear what thus saith the Lord from his scripture. And it's a great privilege to be here at this convention, 72 years. You good folks in Bangor have been gathering together to think about the task of missions and the sending of missionaries and the proclamation of the gospel. I, I trust you know that, that is, uh, uh, this is a rather unique meeting in the world and not many places. I was talking with Tom, maybe one other place in Canada that has a similar kind of convention, uh, but a sort of church-wide, community-wide missions convention is a relatively rare thing in the world. And so I trust you know then it, it is God's kindness to you, its favor to you, that he has allowed you to live in a land where the gospel is preached freely, and he has called you and us together to think about this glorious task of spreading the gospel in the work of missions. And so we want to turn and hear from the Lord this morning in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 9. One of the most basic needs and responsibilities of any church is to train men and women to follow Christ. That is to make disciples of new believers in the faith and to, to walk with and encourage older believers in the faith. And any church that would help its people grow must then have a strategy for teaching them, for instructing them to follow Christ faithfully and joyfully. When a church doesn't have a strategy for making disciples, then that church fails at its most basic responsibility, its most basic calling, a calling given to her by her Lord. And the people of that church are left ill-prepared for carrying out the Lord's instruction. At our church, we have a membership process that involves going through a, a five-session membership class and then is followed by a pastoral interview where I attempt to hear something of the person's testimony. I want to sort of hear their saving knowledge of the gospel and how it was that Christ reached them uniquely. And I'll never forget having a wonderful interview with a young woman, a relatively new Christian. She may have been a Christian for about a year at the time that I met her. And we were sitting in the interview and, and she was just beaming and joyful, telling me about how it was she had come to hear the gospel and how the Lord had given her a new heart, a heart of faith. And I turned as I normally do and asked her about the church that she had belonged to previous to this one and what her experience had, had been like at that church. And I wasn't quite ready for what happened. I mean, her face dropped. Her shoulders slumped. Her entire posture changed. And she said to me with tears welling in her eyes, she said, I, I thought that when I became a Christian, that people would then teach me how to live the faith. That people would help me and encourage me and instruct me. And that just didn't happen. There was, there was some celebration around the moment of my, my profession and coming to believe the gospel, but but then I was just sort of left in the crowd with everyone else and, and not at all helped and prepared. And so I struggled. I struggled alone. 
It was a hard time, even in that church. I wish I could say that young woman's experience was unusual. It wasn't typical, but I do fear that it's a far more common problem than we might think. And it's to the shame of the Christian church and to more Christian, mature Christians that we don't have often an intentional strategy for helping new Christians grow in the faith. Well, in these next five mornings, Lord willing, if Jesus tarries, what we want to do is look at Christ's own instruction to his disciples as a pattern for our own understanding both of, of what it means to follow him and more specifically what it means to follow him in this great enterprise of missions. So what I'd like to do is read this morning Matthew chapter 9 beginning at verse 35 through to the end of chapter 10. And Lord willing, what we'll do is we'll take parts of this section of Matthew's gospel each of the following mornings and consider in part what we learn of Christ and his own character and how it is the character of Christ is meant then to fuel the mission activity of his people. So we want to stare at Jesus and have the reflection of his glory drive us out in the proclamation of the gospel. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I'll tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, You will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, 
Do not worry about what you what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me, the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water, To one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. The word of the Lord. Well, what I wish for us to consider this morning are verses 35 to 38 of Matthew chapter 9. See there that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And in these four verses, I want us to take a look at Jesus' own work in verse 35. I just want us to consider Jesus' own character, his compassion, in verse 36. 
And then he wants to look in verse 37 at Jesus' assessment of the situation, the missionary situation in his day. And then in verse 38, Jesus' solution to that assessment. So first off, Jesus' work, verse 35, our Lord went through all the towns and villages. Our Lord's ministry, his mission, takes the form of an itinerant, short-term mission. He moves through teaching and evangelizing. This is, this is Matthew's summary of Jesus' work really throughout the gospel. So if you hold your place there and just look, for example, back over in Matthew 4, verse 23, we're told they're very much the same thing. Jesus did the same thing in the region of Galilee. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That's what he did. He taught, he preached, he healed. And notice in Matthew 9, verse 35, we're told that he was teaching in their synagogues. It wasn't his turf. It was on foreign soil. How ironic that the place dedicated for the worship of God would be a foreign place to God himself. So he goes into these places that, that though they worship, though they, though they offer praise to God, do not know God. They don't know his Messiah. They don't know the Savior. And so it was very much their synagogue and, and not Christ's synagogue. Look, for example, at Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 56, at, at how Jesus was received in the synagogue. This famous passage Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Verse 57, and they took offense. At him. Our Savior, teaching the truth, offended those who did not know him. They were offended that he should teach such marvelous and heavenly things. And they were offended that his teaching was backed with the approval of heaven in the form of miracles and miraculous power. He didn't teach as the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught, he instructed with authority. Matthew tells us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. But his teaching wasn't received. And when his teaching wasn't received, he went on to proclaim, to to speak forth, to, to preach, as it were, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. That's what Jesus did. He heralded, he proclaimed, he told the people in places that resisted him, among his own, even among his family, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the message that that John the Baptist had preached in preparation to Jesus' coming. 
It was the message that Jesus himself took up, this very simple but profound message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it was the message that the apostles would preach. So when we open to the book of Acts and see the beginning there of the, of the church and the missionary enterprise in Acts, what are they preaching? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And as my brother said a moment ago, that message has not changed. That message that calls sinners to turn from their way and to turn to God through Christ. It's the message of the inbreaking of the kingdom. And a demonstration here in Matthew 9, as we think about Jesus' own missionary efforts, the, the, the demonstration of the inbreaking of the kingdom is right there when it talks about the healing of the masses. That Jesus taught, he preached, and he healed every disease and sickness. Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. The Lord is bringing in the kingdom and fulfilling all that was promised, all that was foretold. He penultimately brings in the kingdom by healing with, with but a word or sometimes a touch. And those healings are a demonstration not only of his power but of the, of the truth of his claims of, of who he is and, and what he's come to do. And ultimately this healing is brought to us not in these particular historical instances of healing, but in that one great event of Calvary's cross, in the atonement where the curse is finally laid upon the back of the sun. In that atonement, in that blood, is the provision for our final healing, where we shall be clothed not with mortality, but with immortality where we shall be given a body fit for eternity, a body fit for standing in the glorious presence of God, where there shall be no more sickness, no more disease, no more death, no more crying, where God himself will take the gentle thumb and wipe from our, our eyes every tear. Christ has brought that. Christ has ushered in this kingdom, this new reality by his preaching and teaching and by his miracles and ultimately by the cross. And this was Jesus' way. This is what Jesus did. He visited place to place, teaching, preaching, and healing. And of course now our work is the continuation of a certain kind of participation in his work. It's a participation in the master's ministry. We're to go into all the world making disciples, teaching them to observe everything that the Lord has commanded it, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For 2,000 years, our mission has not changed. For 2,000 years, Christ has called us to go into the world making disciples, preaching, teaching, and yes, healing carrying with us a demonstration of the kingdom that, that ministers to the needs of people, body and spirit, that ministers to the whole person, that carries with it 
as we shall see, something of Jesus' compassion. Verse 36. When Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Nearly all of the gospel writers tell us this about Jesus' internal emotional state. Nearly everything we know about the sort of psychological makeup, about the emotional makeup of the Savior, can be poured into this one word, compassion. How often the Savior looked upon the people and was moved with compassion. How often he looked upon them and what was provoked in him was was mercy. How he wept over Jerusalem. How he stretched forth his arms to her. Like a hen stretches forth her wings to chicks wanting to gather. And how the Savior, how the Savior in humility is moved with compassion. Consider our Savior, who though he was equal with God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, something to be jealously held on to, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and took upon himself, now the Lord of glory, clothed that glory in human frailness, took upon himself the likeness of man and humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. Why? I suggest to you from Matthew's words here, because of his deep and abiding and unshakable compassion of his mercy and his compassion is stirred when he looks upon the state of people see here they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd there's so much the savior could have recognized in looking at these people there's so much that he could see looking at us he could recognize and focus only on our sins there's enough to occupy his attention. He could recognize and focus only on our weakness, our frailty, that we are nothing but dust. The Savior could look at us and he could recognize and, and focus only on our failures, the things we should have done that we've left undone, the things we should not have done that we have done. And he could recognize and focus only on our shame. But what does Jesus see? What does he see when he looks upon the people? What moves Jesus is our need, our helplessness. He becomes a sheep for the slaughter because we are sheep without a shepherd. He becomes the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world because we have been harassed and lost. Because of that same sin, he becomes our great shepherd because we are aimless 
without him. His compassion moves him to sacrificial love. Indeed, that's what compassion is. It's, it's love dressed in work clothes. It's mercy taking action. And Jesus is full of it. He's full of this kind of compassion, this kind of mercy, this kind of love which proves itself and sacrificing itself for the beloved. We see his compassion on display in his healings and miracles of mercy. And see, we see it most clearly on Calvary's cross where God's word to repentant sinners would always and only be a word of divine compassion, of mercy. And we see Jesus' compassion on display here in our text in his command and his instruction that his people, his disciples, would be a missionary people. You see, it's Jesus' compassion that becomes the grounds, the basis, the reason for our missionary activity. What drives us to take the the gospel to the lost, to the uttermost regions of the world, must be something like Jesus' compassion for the lost. It's a good thing that his compassion fuels our mission activity instead of it being fueled by our compassion. Let us not think that our compassion is what moves us. For our compassion is too weak. We are liable to quit and to feel ourselves exhausted and out of compassion. And our compassion is too easily misdirected. If you're like me, then you are too likely to show compassion where correction is really needed and stern correction where compassion is the better prescription. We're too easily adrift in our demonstration of mercy. And our compassion is only temporary. It may last for a moment or at best a season. Then the effects of human compassion wash out with the morning tide. Only the Savior's compassion can propel and sustain us. Only his deep mercy can motivate, motivate us to a strong, focused, enduring mission to save the lost. It's only feeling as he feels that we're able to continue in his work, to give more of ourselves to the work. It's only being gripped, as it were, with Jesus' view of lost humanity that we are able then to, to move in radical, joyful, enduring sacrifice on behalf of that same lost humanity and in emulation of our Savior. We do the work of missions best when we do it with the Savior's heart, with compassion. And the Lord himself in verse 37 reveals to us not only his, his method, in verse 35, teaching and preaching and, and healing, 
And not only his motivation, his compassion in verse 36, but he reveals to us something of his assessment of the situation in verse 37. He issues a report on the, on the state of things as he saw them at the time. He informs his disciples of the opportunity that is before them and also of the problem accompanying that opportunity. You see there in the verse, first part of verse 36, the opportunity, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. The Lord Jesus reaches for an agricultural metaphor, farming. And he speaks not of clippings, not of gleanings, not of leftovers as it were, not of a, of a, of a bear reaping in a famine time, but he, he speaks of a harvest, of a full and plentiful harvest. Not a tomato or two, but, but indeed a, a great storehouse full. He says the harvest is plentiful. That is the opportunity. There is no lack of potential success. The fields are white and plentiful. And then our Lord gives the problem in verse 37. But the workers are few. See the contrast. A great overflowing harvest next to a handful of workers. Have you ever thought of how tragic it is that a phrase like the harvest is plentiful should ever be followed with a but? How tragic a sentence that is. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. It's a denomination that, that we belong to at First Baptist Church in Grand Cayman. One of its auxiliary committees you may have heard of is the International Mission Board. International Mission Board is the arm of the Southern Baptist Convention that oversees its mission efforts uh, abroad. It is a big organization with a great deal of resources. All of the individual local churches pool some resources into the budget of the International Mission Board, and that's how the work of missions is funded by that convention. A couple of years back, I was surprised to learn that the International Mission Board had more money than workers. It's an agency that pays the full freight for the missionaries that are supported by the convention. They don't worry about salary. They don't worry about retirement. Uh, the training resources are made available before going onto the field and as they're on the field, etc. And yet, there's more money than missionaries in the SBC. The fields are white, but the workers are few. That was the Lord's assessment 2,000 years ago, talking with his disciples here. How would the Lord assess our situation today, you think? We tend to think, I think, that the problem is lack of opportunity or limited success. I think maybe that's our first reaction when we sometimes think about the work of missions is that actually success is limited and difficult to come by. 
Particularly when we imagine, as my friend said, as we imagine groups like Arab Muslims, for example. We even use phrases like closed country or unreached people group or hard to reach people. I think those descriptions are fine as they go. They tell us something meaningful about the context that we're operating in. But I wonder if even those phrases don't communicate a disconnect between our assessment and Jesus' assessment. The Lord is looking on the harvest and seeing it white and plentiful. And I fear that too many of us as his people look upon the harvest and think we're in famine. I think we're plowing in stony ground. We do realize, don't we, that in Jesus' day and for Jesus' apostles, the countries and the cultures they face were every bit as closed or hard to reach as any culture or country or people we should ever face. It's not as though Jesus labored in a day where people welcomed his message. They crucified. It's not as though the apostles labored in a day where Christianity was the the prevailing religion, a popular thing to be. With the exception of John, we think they all were martyred for the faith. They all faced persecution. They all faced difficulty. And we shall see that as we go through chapter 10. And yet the Lord looked at that very time, at those very people, and concluded, that the harvest was plentiful. I think he would do the same in our day. Are not the fields still plentiful? Are not souls still ripe for gospel picking? Isn't the problem that the workers are too few? Well, what is to be done? How are we to address this problem? What solution does the master give us? It's what we find in verse 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Consider then the call to prayer. Consider the wisdom of prayer. When we pray, see who it is that we petition, whom we, whom we ask of. It's none other than the Lord of the harvest. There's no better master planter and reaper, no better plantation owner than the Lord of the harvest himself. And we dare not enter into this work. We dare not enter into this labor without the apprenticeship of prayer, kneeling at the master's feet, coming to the school of Christ, being instructed by the Savior himself in this deep and dear communion called prayer. He knows the harvest, and it's he who may direct our steps, direct our paths, direct our workers to the most fruitful plots of ground. He is Lord of the harvest. It is he who has created this harvest, It is he who turns the stony hearts into into ground, fertile and rich and vibrant for the gospel. He owns the field and he, he owns the harvest. So we are to pray for workers to be sent into his field. We're not going to a place that's beyond the Lord's reach. 
We're not considering lands and people beyond the ownership and the rulership of the sovereign Lord. Rather, we are very much, when we're talking about missions, considering a journey to a place where Christ, by his spirit, has already trod, where he has already walked, where he has already conversed, where he has already prepared a people, where he has already guaranteed by his own omnipotent grace the success of our mission, the plentifulness of the harvest. We need but pray and go. We need but be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel. Consider the wisdom of prayer. It is complete folly to look out on a worldwide harvest of souls without prayer to the one God who can indeed save souls. Prayer, then, is our first priority. Prayer should be the solution, the first solution to this problem of few workers. It's a little bit counterintuitive, I think. We, we might expect that the command, after looking out on this plentiful harvest, might be go, reap. We might expect the Lord to say the, the fields are plentiful with harvest. They are white, so pick up your sickle, grab your bushel, and go. But Jesus doesn't say that immediately. The Lord of compassion calls the disciples to pray. Have you ever considered how remarkable prayer is? We have, through Christ, entered into the Holy of Holies. And we may, through Christ, kneel before the glorious throne of God, our maker. And we may there, without the shame of our sin, without the fear of guilt, look up into the Savior's face and speak with him as children to their parent. Have you considered how remarkable a gift prayer is? that we may sup with God, commune with him, sit as long as we like before him, talk as it were, or if we could, his ear off. Have you considered what gracious and compassionate uh, an invitation prayer is? That the Lord of glory should call us to come into his royal courts, to sit at the banquet table, And to sup, to dine with him. And we shouldn't think to do otherwise. We shouldn't think that prayer is ineffective or impractical. We shouldn't think that the labor of missions depends on our own grit and self-effort. Who's sufficient for these things? Only God. Only God is sufficient for this task. This is why prayer is the first priority and why prayer is the most central and the most arduous part of missions. When we say we should pray first, we're we're not talking about a cop-out. We're not talking about the avoidance of the real work. Prayer is the work. And prayer is not easy. And this this is perhaps why we Christians find it sometimes so difficult. And perhaps why, for the most part, we do Comparatively so little of it. Prayer is work. 
But it's the best work. Because prayer is what moves, what God has called us to use as a, as a means of grace to move workers into the harvest. The first thing Jesus does in compassion for the lost is invite the saved to pray to him on behalf of the lost. His people are invited to the unspeakable, the ineffable joy of talking with him on behalf of the perishing. This is why prayer is compassion. We individually won't easily reach the millions upon millions upon millions of those who are lost. We won't. We are limited, finite beings. But God is not like us. God is not so limited. God is not so finite. He is not without means. And so how do we multiply our limited resources? How do we multiply or escape our finite capacity? We pray to an infinite God. We pray to an omnipotent God. We pray to an omnipresent God. A God who is everywhere. And a God who is not without the ability to save. And so we begin with prayer. If mission is to be Christ-like in its compassion, it must be full of prayer. For it's when we feel as Jesus felt that we really begin to pray. Have you ever tried to feel what it would be like for hundreds and hundreds of millions of souls to perish in hell. Have you ever tried to get a sense of that? The, the weight of that? The intensity of that? The, the agony of that? Have you ever tried to grasp what it would feel like for not just one soul, but millions of souls to perish apart from Christ and to hear God say, depart from me for I never knew you. Imagine the horror. Can you imagine the, the gnashing of teeth, the weeping, the wailing, to come before the judgment seat of Christ and see him not as Savior, but as judge. This comes so close to infinite beauty and infinite perfection and infinite love and infinite joy. And to hear a final word of rejection. No. Stop. Come no further. This is not your inheritance. Can you imagine what it would be like for millions of souls Hear that from God. Until we feel what Jesus feels, we won't adequately throw ourselves into the mission enterprise as he did. But oh, if we could feel a, a modicum of the Savior's compassion, a smidgen of his mercy, 
If we could be gripped with what he sees when he looks on these people harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherd. If we could see, as it were, through his eyes. Wouldn't we give all? Wouldn't we forsake all? Wouldn't we certainly pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers? Feel that. Contemplate what it's like to pass your neighbors each day who know not Christ and who, unless they turn and believe, will certainly endure the judgment of Christ. Think on those family members, that son or daughter, that father or mother, the brother or sister, the the aunts, the cousins, niece and nephews, those whom we love with natural affection, think upon them. If they are now separated from Christ, what would be their lot? Should they perish? Should they die so separated? And, And project that affection onto a world full of people who do not yet know and love Christ, our Savior. Can you feel that? Meditate upon that. And let that drive us to compassion, to mercy, the kind of compassion and mercy that puts on the uniform of missions, that assumes the flag of Christ's ambassadors, and that goes even into hostile places with the glory the good news of Christ, the Savior. Every Christian should live with the Savior's compassion for the lost. If we are Christ, and we recognize in ourselves a a coldness, a lukewarmness, an indifference to the state of the lost, then I pray that the Lord would do something radical in our hearts that heaven would be opened and and a fresh outpouring of God's spirit upon his people would come and that he would enlarge in us something of his own mercy that we might be so moved. For a compassionless Christian is a Christless Christian. He or she is a contradiction. And every Christian is to pray for the work of missions, to pray unceasingly, to pray fervently, to pray specifically, to pray for workers workers already sent and for more to be sent, to pray with a plan. Perhaps you haven't regularly given time to prayer for missions, a couple of suggestions that may be helpful. There's a wonderful publication called Operation World. I'm sure many of you know it. It sort of focuses on a different country or two each day of the year and gives just a ton of information about the people groups in that country, uh, about the work of missions in that land. Make that a part of your regular devotion time, if you don't already, to each day pray for the countries in Operation World or make it a part of your family devotion. Uh, after dinner, open up, a, open up to, what's the day, the 25th? Open up to August 25 and pray for the countries in August 25. Discuss those lands as a family. Pray together as a family. In our own church, in the church directory, and I'm sure many of you have the same thing, 
we publish in a directory a list of people of supported workers and the areas that they, that they work in. And we encourage people to take that church directory and use it more than a phone, make it something more than a phone book, to use that as part of their regular devotion, to pray through one page a day in the directory. If you do that at our church, you pray for the entire congregation in a month's time. And part of what you will pray for as you regularly pray through the directory is you will pray for supported workers and missionaries on the field. Let's not let those workers be out of sight and out of mind. Let's heed the Lord's word to pray. Or for those of you who are more internet savvy than either me or my brother here, the Joshua Project. It's a project. You can go online. You can Google. They publish every day some information on a people group to whom the gospel has not has not borne great fruit yet. Pray for those peoples. Let us be a people who, who wear out the joints of our knees because we have compassion like the Savior's and we humbly and obediently pray for those who will perish unless the Lord sends workers into the harvest. Let's pray. Lord of glory, we ask very simply that you would teach us to pray. Oh, Lord, teach us, just as you instructed your first disciples, those 12 apostles, teach us to pray. And Lord, do more than teach us the mechanics of prayer. Grant that we should pray with your heart, that we should pray with deep compassion. Oh, Lord, grant that we should be gripped with the terrible awfulness of anyone dying in their sins. Lord, grant that we should pray the way you would pray. Bless us, our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.